0: Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform
1: where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with
0: purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Assalamu alaikum. This is AccidentalMuslims.com. Shukran for joining us again. Today we have a very special guest with us, um, Fahmida Mullah. We are very, very honoured to have you and be able to do this interview. I think it's a much needed conversation. So shukran for being with us.
1: Wa well, and it's a pleasure to be here. Shukran.
0: And we have Amir. <laughs> I why I <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I think, as usual, we're going to get straight into the interview. And we're going to go with the first question, which is, who is um, Fahmida Moller?
1: Well, I am an HIV and AIDS activist. I'm a person living with HIV. I am, according to other people, the first Muslim in South Africa that openly declared my HIV status. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically... Loving openly with the virus.
0: Mm-hmm. So take us back a little bit about you, you know, mm-hmm. like about where you come from, your upbringing, those kinds of things. Um, okay. What was life as a child for you?
1: For me, basically, um, my parents were very strict. I come from a very strict Muslim background. We were not allowed to go out with friends even. You had to bring your friends home. In fact, we never had friends. My cousins were my friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, you go to school, you go to madrasa, you come home. And, but for me, at some point, I never thought of marriage, to put it like yes, that. Yes. Um, and then I started working after matric. I worked at the pharmacy. I was a pharmacist assistant. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, people asked me like, you know, cause I was reaching the age of 25, 26. When are you getting married? Because And they would say, you Muslim ladies, you normally marry young yeah, and yeah, so on. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm not interested. You know, I don't even have a boyfriend because, yes. like I said, my parents did not allow that. Yes. So I never thought, you know, getting married. Mm. But yeah, Murphy's Law, I then <laughs> met this man. <laughs> um, in fact, I never um, saw him. I heard him speak. Mm. I was at um, another friend's place, which she lived opposite us, basically. In fact, you, this guy actually worked for my brother-in-law. So they were like brothers. Yes. But I never knew he had a brother. He never told me that he had a brother. And he just told me one day, um, come over, um, come and have some coffee at our place. So I was like, okay, just across the road, I will go. And I heard this man speaking in the background. <laughs> And that, then I knew what they meant, you know. Yes. Love at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> so I fell in love with his voice before I met him. Mm. And then, um yeah, and then I eventually met him. And within a space of three months, we got married. Because once again, my parents did not believe in courtship mm. and stuff like that. Because he was not from South Africa, he told me that I will have to move for him to his country, which is Malawi. Mm -hmm. And, you know, me never being out of South Africa, I've only been as far as Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, wow, you know, I was very excited, but also a bit afraid. You don't know what to expect Mm -hmm. on the other side. Mm But yeah, we got married and I must be honest with you, although I never fancied getting married, I always dreamt of, you know, visualized what my wedding day would look like. Yes. So yeah, my big day came and on the same day that South Africans got to vote for the first time. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. 27
1: April. Yes. I moved to Malawi. When I landed there... Um, I was fascinated with the country, although Malawi is a very poor country, but the people were very, very friendly. Mm. And um, I enjoyed life, and um, I met his mother-in-law, or rather my mother-in-law, yes. I met his, he, because he was married before he had mm. children. Okay. And we basically became like, An instant family, Mm. you know, it was like they were my children because I, although I don't have children, you can ask my siblings, I love children. Mm. I've always loved children. Yes. And um, so it was like, you know, we were like a normal married couple. But then after five months of marriage, he became ill. In fact, he developed TB, tuberculosis, Mm. and being in Africa, you know, they don't have Tablets like we have here oh. so we had to use the injection oh. every day you had to go to the clinic get his injection and yeah and the clinic was like in walking distance from our house but you know you never think anything else of that seven months later after being married my husband passed away he died in my arms I will always remember we were at the hospital because he just got very ill and like I say, the hospital was like across from us. He was rushed to hospital, doctors tried to, you know, do things on him but what I didn't know was when the ambulance came, although it was a short distance, the ambulance still came to fetch him, was that his heart actually stopped and they revived him again. So. Then the doctor told me that he should stay overnight and he was just like dehydrated and he will be home the next day. But in that space of time also, we were supposed to come to South Africa. We already booked the tickets and everything because I could see there was something more wrong with him. Yes. Although I'm not a medical expert, but I could see something wasn't right here. And I myself, I also started to get sick. I was losing a lot of weight Mm -hmm. and um, I started to cough also a lot, but because I've always suffered from um, bronchitis as a child, I never thought anything of it. That night, um, like I said, the doctor said, you just need to overnight, you will be home the next day. Um, Then, he never came back home. Like I say, he passed away that night. In fact, what happened, you know, we all know how Maliki mode works. Um, I was sitting with my husband talking and chatting and then he actually said to me, why don't you sleep a bit? And um, I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not tired. I will, you know, sit with you. But somehow I found myself. I woke up, don't know how I managed to sleep, but I woke up and I saw that my husband was busy dying. You know, you know, you see it was a rolling and the foam was coming out. Yeah, I tried to basically stop him from dying to put it like that. Because for me it was like, how can it be? I mean, I'm newly married to put it like that. But he passed on and um and I had to call my family in South Africa and tell them and it was just very traumatic for me. After the Jonaza my family in South Africa, my parents said that I should come back home. But for me, it was like, how can I just leave? Remember, his children were still there and they were like also traumatized and they didn't want me to leave. But um, his first wife came and she took the children. Okay. And so I think that gave me the knock because I couldn't really cry or anything, mm-hmm. but. When she came the day to take the kids and they were kicking and screaming, they didn't want to go with mm-hmm. her, I think I just broke down. My brother-in-law's brother, he was in, in Malawi at that time, my sister's, my sister's brother-in-law, um, he then said, no, your mom said I must put you on an airplane and take you home. So I came back to South Africa and um, when my parents saw me, They thought that I too am going to die because I lost so much weight. Mm. I actually weighed about 47 kgs at Mm. that point in time. And my mom took me to our local GP and for him it was, no, she's just in shock, you know, because of the sudden death of her husband and because he knew I came from Malawi. He said "Um, it could be the heat also because Malawi is very hot. Well, he gave me a bag full of medication. He said I should go home and I should be fine. But that night, I really got sick. Whatever I you know, took in just came out again. And the next day, my mom took me back to the doctor. And he also was like, now he doesn't know what is wrong with me. Then he wanted to call the ambulance. And so my mom said, no, we will take her in ourselves. I stayed in the hospital for about a week on drips as well. Meantime, doctors asked me a whole lot of questions, medical questions, health questions. I couldn't really answer. I mean, like I said, I'm not a medical expert. But then after one week, they told me I'm fine. I can't figure out apart from dehydration. I should go home and I should be fine. But after one month, I was due to go back for my checkup. Then the doctors were baffled because they thought I should have been okay. I should have at least gained some weight. But nothing like that. The one, my doctor then, she got concerned and she called a whole lot of other doctors. I will always remember there were seven doctors around me. I felt like a guinea pig laying there on the table. You know, they asked this, did this and all Mm -hmm. that. Nothing. Then another doctor came past. She must have heard that, you know, about this case that they couldn't find out mm. what is wrong with me. And she just came casually past and asked me, like, have you been for the AIDS test? But before I could respond, um, one of, my doctor actually said that, um, oh, we took her blood. She should actually now just go home and wait for her results. As if I'm not in the room with them. That is how they were talking. But now I didn't know about my rights and, you know, things like that. And even so, AIDS, you know, it never entered my mind. Mm. And I actually felt insulted when she asked this question, but I couldn't say anything. And then my own doctor said to me, um, go home, I will call you myself in two weeks' time if there's anything yes. wrong. And I thought it strange, why would she call me herself? I mean, only your secretary or whoever will call you. But nevertheless, I went home. My mom, you know mothers, she bombarded me with questions. Mm-hmm. And I could not tell anyone that I've been tested for AIDS. That time, I didn't even know there was a difference between the two. I also just took it as AIDS. Yes. And then um, I just gave my mom a whole lot of lies. I used my bronchitis as an excuse. Because I didn't, I mean, I've got to tell your family now that you've been tested for AIDS. Yeah, so I had to wait for two weeks. And in that two weeks, it was a long two weeks. I think it was the longest two weeks (laughs) ever in my life. But yeah, so for me it was like, what if, I would ask myself, what if I have AIDS? What am I going to do? Because I remember way back, before I got married even, we had a um imam that was like a you know a friend in the house and he came to tell my mom then one day that he just had to do a, a hustle on someone that passed away of this disease mm-hmm. and um, the family wanted nothing to do with the person and he basically had to take a house pipe and do the the husul, and then he had to bury the person in a black bag mm. so i thought now Is this going to be my fate? You know, I couldn't imagine myself going in a black bag, you know. But I was scared. I was confused. And I was like, you know, what if? Then, in the meantime, my mom is like, what is wrong with you? Why don't you eat? And, you know, I couldn't really answer my mom. The two weeks passed. And the day the doctor was supposed to call me. I remember that time we didn't have cell phones like today. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to sit by the house phone, waiting for the phone to ring. That morning, somehow, the phone itself never even rang. I even picked up the receiver to make sure that the phone is working. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And my mom asked me, like, why are you sitting here? Why don't you go sit in your room or whatever? I couldn't tell I'm waiting on this call. I said, no, just relaxing here. That night, I really worried. Why did she not call? What is wrong with me? And then I thought, maybe I have cancer. I mean, I've seen people dying of cancer. They lose a lot of weight and stuff like that. But then the next day, the next morning, the house phone rang and my mom answered the telephone. And then before she gave me the receiver, she said to me... "Um, there's a lady on the line for you and she says she's a doctor from, I'm not going to mention the hospitals. And I said, okay, fine. But before she gave it to me, she said to me, why does a doctor call you at home? Like I said, you know, normally someone else would call you, not the doctor themselves. I took the receiver and um, my mom was standing there, <laughs> now waiting. And um, I can clearly hear the doctor telling me, Fahmida, you don't have AIDS, but can you please come in as soon as possible, I need to speak to you. I said, fine, it's okay, I will come in the next day. Now, I could have gone in the very same day, because that time I practically lived just behind the hospital. But somehow, I was like afraid. Okay, now, I don't have AIDS, so what can it be? That night, I never slept. You know, all sort of things went through my mind. And I still said, thank God, that's not AIDS, you know. And then the next morning, bright and early, I went in, went to go see the doctor. I was there first. I was the first patient. But she wait, She made me wait until I was the last person. And I got fed up, you know. For me, it was like, I'm here first. Yeah, she's course. calling everyone else, but not me. And then I got tired. I got up. And... Um, There were posters on the wall dealing with different health issues and I actually got stuck at one poster that dealt with AIDS at that time. The symptoms that you have, how you can contract the disease, those kind of things. And I looked at it, I read it and at the back of my mind I was like, I have some of the symptoms. My late husband had some of those symptoms but she told me I don't have AIDS. But I got stuck there, standing there. And then um, the doctor came in, standing in the doorway. She looked at me. She started to cry. I was like, why is she crying? Mm. But at the same time, I then knew that I had AIDS because she was crying. Oh. And for me, it was like, this is something I can never... Describe to someone how I felt. It was like, you know, the term, someone threw a bucket of ice water over you. That is how I felt. I was shocked. I was numb. I was like, how is it possible? And on top of that, the most important question, where did I get it from? But I knew at that point in time that I had it. And then she said to me, I'm sorry, but I couldn't tell you over the phone. And, um but you do have the virus." I couldn't talk, I couldn't, like I said, she was crying. I was shocked I didn't know what to do or to say. And then she said to me, come with me to my surgery. And then we went and again, we went through my own medical history. We couldn't find anything. And then I told her about my late husband, the symptoms that he had, TV, the, the loss of weight, the Pumples on his body, the mm-hmm. rashes and mm-hmm. that. And then she said, Well, this is what she actually suspected that he's the one that infected me. Mm-hmm. Now, being married for seven months at the age of 26, I ask myself, Is this what I waited for? Because for me, with the knowledge and the, what people will tell you, he will live for two weeks and then you're going to die. So I was angry. I felt extremely angry, not just at him. I was angry at the whole world. I felt angry at our Creator. Because at that point in time, people, our people led us to believe that it was a bala, it was a curse from Allah. And for me, it was like, you know, I've I've loved my life Islamically, so what did I do wrong, you know? And... um, I questioned myself. I questioned my beliefs. She was still talking, but I just left. I took my bag and I, I I, just left. I just wanted to get home. How I got home, I don't know, but I found myself in my car in front of my mom's house. I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? I'm going to die in two weeks' time. I don't have a child. And, yeah, and on top of that, My late husband gave it to me. And um, I went inside. My mom jumped on me. Yeah, so what did the doctor say? And and I could not even talk to my mother. I was like, I'll tell you later. I again used the excuse of my bronchitis. Doctors are trying some medication and stuff because I need to go back again. I don't know where I got that from, but that is what I thought. My mom did. That night, I I didn't make Salah. I didn't pray anymore. Because for me, it was like, how can I worship a God that, you know, punished me like this? I was just sitting there. What do I do? Who do I tell? And I then decided, I'm not going to tell anyone. Because even with the experience of my late husband, he suffered severely for two weeks before he died. So I thought, that's the route I'm going. For that two weeks, it was like, I basically prepared myself to die. Now you're going to ask me, how do you do that? Nice. <laughs> 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 um, like I said, I didn't pray. I was still angry. And um, I was just in my room. I, nev- I didn't eat, could, could hardly sleep or anything. But in between I would, you know, gather my most precious belongings because I used to love, you know, like bangles and teddy bears, soft toys and stuff. And I would give it to my nieces and nephews. I would just give away my stuff. Now, my family knew that I loved those things. So why would I give it away? And I just said, mom, no, I'm preparing for a new life. But that was my way of preparing to to die. After two weeks, the morning of the two weeks that I was supposed to have died, (laughs) I laugh about it now, but yeah. I woke up, looked around, okay, I'm still in my room, yeah, and um, then I jumped up, wow, I'm still alive, I didn't die. I then decided, I'm going back to that doctor that told me that I had AIDS and i mean she didn't tell me anything else Mm. just that you have aids and that's it again i was the first person there because i didn't make a booking now i couldn't complain i had to wait and then when she eventually came out i was the only person there she like what are you doing here Mm. and i said to her remember you told me two weeks ago that i have aids and she said "Yeah, i remember you and on top of that she actually told me that day when she gave me my results she never thought that a person like me would contract AIDS. What she meant by that I don't really know maybe because I was wearing hijab or yes I really don't know I never even asked her but then um I said to her you told me two weeks ago um that I have AIDS so how come I never died and then she was like oh no um that is not um what's going to happen um Then she said to me, you have a lifespan of 5 to 10 years, but only if you take good care of yourself, take your vitamins, eat your veggies, do exercise. And I looked at her and I said to myself, but you're not God. You know, you can't tell me I'm going to live 5 to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Although I was angry at at Allah, I was still like, you can't tell me this. And um, I then decided I wanted to live. What for, I didn't know. But I just then then decided I'm not ready to die yet. And um, then she suggested that I speak to a counsellor, something which you should have done in the first place. I mean, today I yes. know my rights, but that time I didn't know. And then um, I said, yeah, I would like to do that. I would like to speak to the counsellor and also maybe to other people that have AIDS And she still did not correct me even. She just, like, went with the flow. And then um, she made a a booking for me to meet with the counsellor. And from there, I think my life actually kind of changed. The counsellor again told me that um, the same thing, that she will introduce me to other people living with HIV. She explained to me um, the difference between the two. What is HIV and what is AIDS? I think talking to the counsellor helped a bit. Mm. But then at the same time, I was diagnosed with TB. Mm. Now, you know, TB and HIV, especially in South Africa, goes mm. hand in hand. Yes. Yes. And um, now it was approaching Ramadan, mm. the month of Ramadan. Remember, I still didn't tell anyone about my status. And I was still very weak. Um, I just wanted to sleep. I was extremely tired. And then, because the doctor, she kind of knew about Ramadan and that, and she warned me beforehand, you cannot fast. You Mm -hmm. still need to build up your body and stuff like that. And I was like, "Mm, you can't tell me what to do. I mean, (laughs) 26 years, I've never skipped a Ramadan in my life. So how am I going to do this? And um, the first day, but but now remember, I was on TB medication, mm-hmm. and how it happened that time, they had like a, I'm not sure what they call it today, like a TB buddy. Mm-hmm. You had to go to someone's house to go and get your medication. You mm-hmm. didn't get it from the clinic. So um, the doctor actually told me, why don't you use your, and I said to her, I, I cannot not fast in my house. What is my family going to say? And then they're going to ask me questions. Mm -hmm. And then she's the one (laughs) that said to me, use your TB as an excuse that you cannot fast. Mm -hmm. Um, That you have to take your tablets and, you know, yeah. And then, um, but I was, I thought I will be brave. The first day I fasted, I think it was about 11, 12. I could feel um, I'm going to faint. Mm -hmm. And I went to go lay down. And by two o'clock I couldn't anymore. So I I had to break my fast. But no no one in the house knew. I pretended I was fasting. Second day, the same story. The third day I was due at the hospital again. And the doctor looked at me and she said to me, You are fasting eh? And I was like, I'm trying to you know, <laughs> yes. like that. She said to me, No, you are doing more damage to your body than, you know. I said, okay, fine, I, I realize that. So yeah. I, will, from, I will go home and I will tell my, my family that I have TB and I cannot fast. In the meantime, my life was fine. Like I gained weight, my health improved, oh. and if you looked at me, you wouldn't say there's something wrong yes. with me. Yes. But I still needed to work on myself. I also, in the meantime, because of the counselor, I made peace with Allah. I asked for forgiveness. I started to make Salah again because she also told me that it's not true that this doesn't come from God. How she explained mm. it to me. And then, um, but I needed to forgive my late husband. And for me, that was really difficult. That's something that I, I really struggled mm-hmm. with. But I eventually did because, like the counselor said to me, if you don't, you're going to, you are, going, you are actually going to follow him to the grave. Mm because you will, your immune system will not recover, you will, you will die also. also. And then I realized what she was saying was actually true. And I um, slowly but surely I forgave him. I made peace with that. And, um, and I also, although it's not important how or where someone contracted HIV, mm. But if I backtrack, I can tell you exactly how he contracted mm. the virus. He was a political prisoner in Malawi oh, because their country went through the exact same changes as our country mm. with um, democracy and, you know, things like yes. um, He was injected in able, they forced him to talk um, against the government. I don't know, he was some political activist mm. there. And he refused to do it, so they injected him. So I assume. That, that is where you got it. But, like I say, even when people ask me today, I tell them, what's well, not important? Because mm. I, I yes, have it, yes, there's nothing mm. I can do. But you get some people that's really like, but ah, you should have do this and do that. And yes. I said, I couldn't, my husband mm. died, you know. But, yeah. And then um, I forgave my late husband. I made sulukh with Allah, and, like I said, my life was fine. Mm. But now it was nearing the end of 1995. And I remember in South Africa at that time, people didn't talk openly about AIDS. Mm-hmm. If they did, it was in a very rude and cruel yes. way. Yes. But for me, it was like I felt I needed to do something with my life. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, the support group, they really helped me. And there I met people from different backgrounds, mm-hmm. but I was only Muslim there and the reason why I was the only Muslim was because they told me what happened to the Muslims before me um, and I think that was one of the reasons why I was so adamant if I one day disclose my HIV status I'm going to start a Muslim support group because what they told me there really made my hair stand on end. Apparently um, there was one Muslim guy He told his family that he had AIDS. I still refer to it as as AIDS because that is how people talk about it. it Mm. And then um, they kicked him out, they rejected him. This church, the support group, because they belong to each other, they are one body. They took him in. He said to them, because he was was like on his last, you know, living with the disease. And um, that time there was also no medication really. So he was like dying. And then um, he said to the people, if he dies, they must cremate him. Now imagine being a Muslim and being cremated. When I heard that, like I said, I was really sad. It happened so that he died and they cremated his body. But in the meantime, the family now, they were looking for him. I think maybe they realized that they made a mistake or whatever. But when they eventually found um, where he was, they gave the family the bag of ash. So I was like, even when I talk about a store, I I still cry when Mm -hmm. I... So for me, it was like, I wouldn't want to go that route. I wouldn't want anyone to go, you know, to die like that without your dignity, without your Mm -hmm. Islam. And Like I said, 1995, the support group that I belong to would go out to other organizations and companies, and they would you now start talking, educating people about the disease. By now, then, I discovered that there's a difference between yeah. HIV and AIDS. And then, um, and we in the group, we would like talk about our experiences, how we contract the virus, and how you should not, you know, contract the disease, try to protect yourself, and those kind of things. But for me it was very difficult and in that group was also a, a priest and I think I got my, my courage and my strength from him and he was the one that, that would say to me, come with us, come and talk, you know, and I would do that, I would go with them and I would talk, but they used to laugh at me about this, I will tell them beforehand you must know, no, if I see someone with a scarf, I'm not going to talk. Yes. <laughs> and uh, like I said, they used mm. to tease me, they would run back and say, you can't talk, there's someone with a scarf or a fist or whatever. Mm. I don't know about the other Muslims yes. that, were, that was not wearing a scarf or whatever, <laughs> but for
0: me. So at this point, you were then, sorry, You were speaking in like public, yeah. but your your, your family said... They speaking.
1: didn't know. Okay.
0: They didn't know. So, taking a risk.
1: Call. Yeah, okay. I was taking that risk. That <laughs> yes. That's why I say yes. if I would see someone with a s- mm. scarf and that, uh-uh, I wouldn't. And then, um, but that is how I kind of pulled up the courage. And then I decided, no man, why must I keep quiet? Why can't I tell my own family that I'm living with HIV? Mm. Yeah, I think, I always say, for me, that was the most difficult thing to do. Telling my immediate family, like my parents and my siblings. For me, it was easier to tell a group like you, because you don't know me. And for me, I was also at that point, I don't care if you judge me. You know, that's that's your thing. So i eventually I turned back about four times before I told my parents. But I knew I had to do it. Because, like I said, Ramadan has come and go and, you know, things were okay. And But in the meantime, still, even in my own family, people were very crude when it comes to that disease. And I would look at them and I would ask myself, what if they should know that I'm one of those people living with HIV? I remember my parents were in the room, in bed this morning. I just decided, oh, I'm going to do it. But my worst fear was, what if they kick me out? Mm-hmm. Remember the story that I told you about this guy? So yes. that was my fear. Yes. Where am I going to go? I eventually told my parents. And my mom, yeah, she jumped up. Yeah, I knew there was something wrong with you. And why didn't you confide in us? Yeah. And, but my dad was just quiet. My late dad, actually, also passed away now. And um, then he actually told her, I can't imagine the. It couldn't have been easy for her to come to us and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then, but he said to me, um, "Don't worry, we don't charge you, and we don't charge your husband either, because he was a good man." But he actually made me feel guilty. What his next words? He said to me, "You know what? You need all now more than ever in your life." And I was like, mm, "If only you could know what I yeah. did." But, but yeah, yes. and uh, but what he said was true yeah. also and my parents then decided in fact they told me no one else has to know we will keep this amongst ourselves and then my mom just said to me but she would like for my siblings to know my sister and my two mm. brothers and um, i said yeah it's fine whatever mm. makes you happy i'm i'm okay with that and and i asked him so we are not going to kick me out And my dad was like, no, we whatever happened to you comes from Allah. You must believe that. Then my mom went out. She she was the one that informed my siblings, not me. I, I still didn't have that courage. Then in our own immediate family, things were okay. Things were fine. But it's just one thing which my parents did, which I didn't like. My younger brother was about to get married in Malaysia. Um... And they were supposed to go for the wedding yeah. and they cancelled their flight. They didn't want to go because they thought like I did, I'm going to die tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the more I was telling them, I'm not, you know, you can go, uh, I'm fine. And then my sister then decided that the family must go for counselling so that they can know also how to treat me and how I can treat them, you know, mm-hmm. vice versa. And I think that helped a lot, but still my parents, especially my mom, she refused. She didn't want to go.
0: What was that so that moment because all along they didn't know and there was other people that knew and all of that. What was that moment like where you finally told your parents?
1: It was a huge relief for me. I was very much relieved. And I felt like now I don't care who else finds out. Um I'm okay with that, but like I said, my parents' decision was that, or their choice was mm. that, we should keep it amongst yes, ourselves. Yes. And okay. I mean, I could respect that. Mm. 1995, 1996. Then. Like I say, in the meantime, things were okay, things were fine. But in South Africa now, people started to talk openly. No, no longer that judgment and stuff like that. But it was it. But still, you know. Mm and i myself i was starting to feel agitated because i wanted to speak openly but i couldn't then one day i at the support group we had a, there was some kind of meeting my parents used to go with me also because now they knew about yes. it and they would join me and then i actually decided that i wanted to disclose my hiv status but before i did that i kind of called around to other Muslim health organizations or dealing with health or something like that. And the response that I would get from them was um, because I wouldn't give my name. I would just say, you know, I'm inquiring we get someone that you know, that is Muslim, can get help if they are HIV positive and the response was, who are you? What is your name? And um, do you have AIDS? And I would be like, that is not what I was asking you. Yes. And then, um, so I just decided, okay, they're not very friendly. So mm-hmm. I just left it like that. At this meeting, like I've said, there was one, a Muslim guy. Because now we mingled and we were talking with other people. And then he actually, this Muslim guy, asked my dad, my dad, um, what are we doing here? How come... Muslim group what are you doing at the Christian support group mm. so my, my dad asked him the same question back what are you doing yeah. <laughs> and then he actually said that he is from the Islamic Medical Association yes. yeah and he's actually looking for Muslim people living with HIV and um, because he was in the field of TB but in for him He knew that there are Muslims living with HIV, but they're not coming forward. So, he's looking for Muslims. So, he actually initially thought that my dad was HIV positive because he didn't see me because I was on the other side of my dad with my hijab. So, he didn't see me. (laughs) So, then my dad said to him, "Um, my daughter belongs to the support group and she is the one that is HIV positive. And with that, I walked around my dad and I said, yes, I am the one that is positive. So, what? Do you actually want?
0: Yes.
1: But do you mind um, if I have a chat with you? But I said, yeah, it's fine. We can talk. And then he said to me, like I said, they are looking for Muslim people um, to be open about their status. And his wife is a a radio presenter or something at Radio 786. And he asked me if I don't want to go on air and talk about my experience living with HIV. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, well... um, let me think about it. I didn't give him a straight answer. I said, I need to first ask the permission of my family, and then I will get back to you. And, but at that point in time, I actually already made up my mind that I'm going to do, do it. it. Because like I said, I was tired of hiding and keeping quiet. And in the meantime, more and more Muslim people were dying because nobody talked about it. So we went back home that night, and my parents asked me, what do you think of this person asking you these questions? And I said to them, well, this is what he requested from me, so I really need to think seriously about it. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, I said to my mom, I'm going to do it. And I actually asked all my siblings, I asked them their opinion. What will they do? Mm -hmm. Are they okay if I should? go open about my, st- my status. And their response was, whatever you do, we will we will support you, we'll be behind you. I called this guy, I called him and I said to him, I am ready, I want to do it. So I went on air, on radio seven at six, I declared my HIV status. But the reason why I agreed to do that on that particular slot, because it dealt with health issues. Okay. And I know that all of my family listens to that particular program. Oh,
0: wow. Okay.
1: Because at the next event, family event, they will discuss whatever topic was on air. So it was now the perfect chance for me. And then I went on air, talk, gave my name, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know where I got the cash from to do it. But like I said, I just felt I needed to do this. Now, there was a call-in session. People could phone in and comment or curse me or whatever. But alhamdulillah, no one did. The response was overwhelming. People were like, it's by time. And there we would also hear how they have lost family members to this disease. How they were rejected because of the people that died of HIV. I went home. But like a, none of my family members called in there. Like I said, I knew they were listening. Nobody called. I went home. And now I remember this is now two years later that I actually got my... that I'm now living with HIV. I never cried. Remember I said to the doctor, cried. She yes. didn't give me a chance yes. to cry. And then um, that night I broke down. And I cried. And I said to myself... I was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. What What did you actually expect to achieve? I asked myself. I just couldn't find the answers. I just cried. And then the house started to get full of family members. They came from everywhere and um, they were angry. Why did you do it? Why did you not just tell us? You know... Um, And I couldn't stop crying. I was just stop crying. And then one of my aunts, very sweet lady, she stood up and she came to stand next to me and she put her arm around me. And she said to me, "Um, don't worry. If no one else wants to support you, I will support you. And I looked at her and I said to myself inside, alhamdulillah, there's one family member that's supporting me. And I stopped crying and she said to me, you grew up in front of me. I don't care. So she, she said to me, I don't know this disease, but I don't care who, what, you are still my child. And that gave me the courage to continue. And I will always say, I never look back again. Also, can I just ask a very good question? Sure. What are your coping mechanisms? A lot of people ask me that. Um... I think it's like, I know currently I'm still the only Muslim person openly living with HIV. And I know, I mean, I don't normally talk about it, but I get a lot of people calling me, WhatsApping me, Facebook me, telling me that, you know, I am their hope, I am their role model, and um, I give them the courage to continue with life. So I feel... I also feel like if I should die, what is going to happen to those people? Because there's no one else that can Mm. basically take my place. But coping, I think I actually made a promise to a late cousin of mine who also died of AIDS. Mm. And at that point in time, we didn't know. We only discovered when he was already on his deathbed. He called me and he said to me that I must promise him that I'll always be there for other people. Mm. And um and I think for me that's why when I get sick sometimes and I remember what they asked me. And then I'm like, I can't die now. <laughs> you know, I must I must be there for other people. And I think my deen, my Islam, keeps me going. People always ask me like, um, how come you live so long with the disease? And I will say, first of all, Allah is supporting me, my support in Allah, and my trust and faith in Allah. And then secondly, the support of my immediate family. That That mm-hmm. is how mm-hmm. I have survived this yeah. long. Way.
0: Firstly, thank you for just your openness. Yeah, I am blown away. It's a very mm-hmm. eye-opener for me, yeah, and mm-hmm. I think for all of us, actually. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much um, for of being, fun. I think it's really, really been an honour. Thank you for helping um, Muslim people in, in South Africa to, to try and change the narrative. I think it's mm. very important. And um, yeah, I think we'll keep in
1: touch. Shukran so much for being an inspiration. That's a pleasure. Shukran. Assalamualaikum.
0: So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us.
1: And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.